Welcome to episode 27 of the Rockin' Interviews podcast. I'm your host, Shannon Wilk, and today I'm joined by... Robert Mason. I sing for the band Warrant. Cool. So your career started in the New Jersey music scene. So tell me a bit about that time and how you got started singing in bands. Well, I was born in New York City, and uh, my part of our family moved to the suburbs for uh for schooling basically you know so i i was a new jersey kid through uh, high school and at college but always went back into the city so you know being so close to the new york metro being in the new york metro area so close to uh to manhattan you always feel that influence so yeah. i was always going back there for you know concerts and you know that's where the record companies are for the most part and stuff like that but uh, but yes truth be told i kind of got my first experiences cut my teeth like a lot of kids did that wanted to play music uh it was in my family i got the benefit of understanding harmony through uh through my dad and so i was singing from the time i was two for real i don't wow. know maybe maybe younger i don't know that's the earliest reports <laughs> i have it's the okay. earliest memories i have are honestly singing for honestly singing two-part harmony and three-part harmony with my parents that's awesome and it's not like and my dad sang and i understood it's kind of like i understood the relationship of it mm -hmm. before i could read or write or do math so mm -hmm. i had a a kind of oral understanding of it with my brain and my ears before i was putting pen to paper or doing anything like that so Mm -hmm. Singing from very early on, piano lessons, uh, kind of early, uh, probably eight, nine years old. And then I kind of got sidetracked with every other thing that a kid does between right. academia and sports and every other thing. But music was always there. Mm -hmm. uh, garage bands were there, you know, from the time I was in grade school. Yeah. But it took a serious turn uh, when I was out of high school and in college. Mm -hmm. and it became relatively clear to me that I wanted to be playing music and in a band. And I started actually as the keyboard player and background singer, because, you know, when you join a band, there are guys already there. And there's somebody who's right. staked his claim and his position. Oh, I'm the lead singer. I'm the guitar player. I'm this. I'm like, okay, well, I, I play piano and guitar. I'll, I'll play keyboards. Here we go. You know? Mm -hmm. So I did a little of that. And then it became kind of clear after just a little bit of time that I should be uh, singing more and then the lead singer. And it's kind of a logical progression that yeah. that took in my life. And to come out from behind any instruments and just stand there was kind of a thing that happened in my, I would say, very early 20s. Okay. Maybe, maybe 19. So then it was cover bands, even writing songs back then or getting with bands that were playing some original songs and some cover stuff as the, as the scene supported that sort of thing. I mean, it was always a little more friendly to, to covers bands, but, mm -hmm. but that's just how it went throughout. And that would have been the early part of the 80s. Okay. Uh, so like we've established, you were playing in cover bands on the East Coast. When you got a call saying you got an audition for a lynch mob and within a matter of weeks, your life did a complete 180. So tell me about that. Well, I actually had a recording contract prior to that. Okay. With a band that had a, a 
what they referred to as a as a production deal or a demo deal where the president of A&R of the record label signs you and says, okay, we see promise and we're going to fund it, but we want you to write more songs. So I went through that process with that band uh, and it turns out that during that process, I got to record with a great producer by the name of David Prater at the same time that he was doing the band Firehouse, his first record. Okay. So we all got to be friends and, you know, we were coming in doing, the producer was doing double sessions fueled by, I don't know, coffee, probably maybe something else. I don't know, but you know, as it goes, once again, that's towards the middle or late eighties. And I, I remember that deal kind of vaporizing as they sometimes do because the president yeah. of A&R that had signed us uh, left the company. He left right. Epic Sony. And here I am with this, you know, the first time you get a quote unquote record deal and you're writing songs and making a record and, you know, someone else is paying for it. And you feel like, cool, I could be on my way. And then it just absolutely virtually overnight you hear, oh, he left the company. And then, yeah. you know, the new guy that takes his place has his pet projects and he looks at the old guy's stuff. And it's like any other changing of the guard where they say, well, out with all the old stuff, because this is what I want to flex my muscles on. I have my own pet projects. So you kind of get left out in the cold. Uh, I think the uh, we were released and the band didn't owe any money or anything like that. but got to walk with uh, somebody got to walk with the demos. But yes, I put another band together, started showcasing for labels in New York City again, mm -hmm. short, shortly thereafter, as you do, uh, only doing all original material. I kind of gave the cover thing a slip in, uh, what would that have been? The eight or 89, I think. So not doing that anymore. It was, it got me a lot of, in front of a lot of people. And it was kind of a great development process. But then, yes, I was doing that band showcasing and not having a whole lot of luck securing a real big record deal. A couple of offers, but nothing major. And then um, I found out Lynch Mob was auditioning. Yeah. So got myself an audition, flew myself out there uh, and kind of snuck in yeah. through some channel through some channels I had. And yes, got that. Got that gig after like, you know, an audition and then a week or two of sitting around back home on the East Coast. So, yes, I moved out to Phoenix and uh, started the whole lynch mob thing for me. Awesome. Um, and I read that you played a show with lynch mob opening for Warren. Is that true? Uh, we toured once our record came out in 92, uh, the lynch mob record on Electra. Mm -hmm. Janie and I had become friends while... They were finishing up Dog Eat Dog, as I remember, the end of at the end of uh, ninety one, and we were recording and finishing up our record in ninety one into ninety two. So, yeah. Janie, Janie and I met in L.A., got to be friends, hung out a bunch, and uh, over drinks one night. It was one of those things. Well, I have a record coming out. You have a record coming out. You guys should open for us. Yeah, and that actually happened. So. Uh, when the Lynch Mob record came out, we had a few offers. I remember faxes coming in with tons of dates for like Kiss and other bands. I yeah. was super stoked. And then that got sort of stalled. And I think Kiss had to cancel that leg of their tour for some reasons. And during that interim time, we figured, well, we'll just go out and do clubs and theaters, you know, as Lynch Mob and, and 
you know, take a support band. And we took our friends, uh, my friend Alex Kane, who was in a band called Life, Sex and Death. That was his band back in the early 90s. So we took them out on a theater and big club tour at the beginning of 92 when our record was brand new and then joined up with Warrant once they released Doggy Dog. So yes, we toured in arenas with Warrant through summer fall of uh, 92. Cool. Maybe even er- maybe a little earlier. But uh but yeah, that was the Doggy Dog tour and I think Tora Tora was our other act. In fact, I know it. Awesome. So Did yeah, that's, any- that's where I got to go know those guys. And Lane and I hung out a lot during those times. What is the favorite memory? Oh, from that oh okay. No, now I guess. See, there you go. The plot thickens. Okay. Um, my usual answer is saving it for the book. But um, yeah, Lane and I would kind of ditch our bands, get in a cab, go find a club or whatever, live music venue or something. And uh, after we played the arena, he would announce it. He would say, hey, we're all going to go here. You know, and he, was, he was pretty well known for that. Mm-hmm. and uh because normally we would go up and do an encore on stage with uh with the warrant guys or at least i would you know do that yeah yeah because as stated lane and i were pretty close and uh we'd go out and extend the evening the after party would be in wherever you know the red carpet in st cloud minnesota or the you know that place mm-hmm. Sorry, fun on the road. those guys were genuinely fun to hang out with yeah uh so after lynch mob ended you joined a band called cry of love um and i absolutely love the album you did with them so can you tell me about that project yeah there was a lot of time in between there where i did a couple of things some overt and some covert yeah but uh yeah i've, I've done a whole lot of stuff the cry of love thing came about i was a fan and I knew their A&R guy, Josh Sarbin, at Columbia Records in New York. And uh, we had mutual friends. And I guess around, I was out of Lynch Mob, still living in Arizona. And in the middle or end of 93, I think I got a phone. Maybe it was, eh, maybe I went back east and came back. But I got a call saying, hey, they need a singer. Uh, their singer, Kelly, is... It doesn't isn't going to be in the band anymore. You know, I I, I don't even recall the reasons, to be honest with you. But uh, mm-hmm. they called and asked me if I would uh, if I would audition, and if you know, because we were all had mutual friends, but we had never really met or hung out very much. And if it, I think I met them at a cat club show in New York when the band was when Cry of Love was brand new. So is that album something you still uh, like look back on today fondly? Is that an album you're still proud of doing and working on? I'm fiercely proud of that record. It was, it was a pretty big departure home to what I really am quote unquote, you know, it's funny. You could, you could do different records that sound different and there's always going to be somebody who says, who crucifies you for it. Yeah. You could be praised for your range. If you're an actor and you play a villain in one movie and then a priest in the next movie, you know? Yeah. But if you're, but if you do anything that isn't away from what people, the original, the original audience perceives as what you are, quote unquote, then you, then it's considered disingenuous in some way, which I think is 
a shortcoming yeah. of people yeah. to be you know, the ones I, I appreciate people who are a little less narrow-minded. Everybody likes what they like. And I understand that, but yeah, the, the cry of love thing was something that I joined. The songs were mostly written. So it wasn't like the lynch mob thing. I didn't get to create that record from scratch, uh, right. but I put my stamp on it and those guys were amazing players. Uh, the guitar player, oddly freed, not just a talented guitar player, but a really good guy. Everybody there, they're, they're Southern gentlemen. Mm-hmm. Record got to be on Columbia. Uh, it was just a little mistimed as far as the music industry was concerned, because they didn't know maybe perhaps where to put us in the in the scheme of things. Played shows yeah. on our own, opened for the Allman Brothers, opened for Cheap Trick, uh, played with a bunch of different acts throughout the support of, of that record coming out. But it never really stuck because it was 97 by the time right. we ended up putting that record out. Uh, you know, the first time I auditioned for that band, they were fresh out of parting ways with their singer and they didn't know what they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So they were stalled for a while and kind of sitting around, maybe auditioning other people. I don't know what they were doing, but I went back home. Mm-hmm. after my initial meeting with them and then got a gig singing backgrounds for Ozzy Osbourne for a year on the road all around yeah. the world. So for me, I kind of just went, well, all right, I didn't get this gig. Sharon Osbourne just called me. He wants me to go on the road. I'm not doing right. anything else. And I love Oz and I love everybody else in the band. Let's do it. So I went out and did that for the better part of almost a year until, uh, until cry of love came calling. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so how did you end up getting to join Ozzy on Taurus as backing vocalist? Work for hire. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sometimes my name is on the record. Sometimes it's not, you know, I get, <laughs> I was, I was handsomely to do a variety of tasks between writing and uh, coaching singers through their vocal tracks and background vocals, stuff like that. So when Sharon coincidentally wanted to have a real life human to go on the road to sing backing vocals instead of using tracks or electronics or whatever samples. You got to think this is 1995 at the time. So all the digital stuff was developing. Uh, You would have to use a sampling keyboard or a tape or disc of some sort to, you know, to play to tracks and to her credit and to Ozzy's credit, they didn't want to do that. Mm -hmm. So Sharon started calling around looking for background singers to find a male voice that would blend well with his. And my name came up from what I understand three out of four times. So the fifth phone call, she called me. Nice. And so I remember hearing a story of Ozzy pranking you on stage at one point. Is that true? And if so, what's the story? Oh, no, that was constant. He was uh, <laughs> the, uh, well, the story is he had these two 55-gallon drums full of water and a pump and this thing that looked like a rifle that would shoot water 30, 40 feet in the audience okay. at high pressure. And yeah. he would hose the audience down. If you remember any of those, there's, it's all on video. There's tons of it around that time period. He used to love to do that. And he would come on stage with buckets of water and throw them at the audience and stuff. It was, you know. He was he was hot and sweaty. Maybe his thought was everybody else should be. 
soaked up. Yeah, he turned that gun on me a few times. And the first time caught me by surprise and almost peeled my eyelids back. Because, I mean, it would come at you with significant force. Yeah. And, you know, he just thought that was the greatest thing. And he's laughing like a little kid. He thought that was the greatest joke <laughs> in the world. He'd come up to me afterwards, you know, run up, run up to me after the show, completely soaked. He's like, I got you. I got you good. I'm like, yeah, you certainly did, yo, man. You know? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I did. I did go to, uh, I, on a day off, I did go to the sporting goods store and pick up a mask and fins and a snorkel <laughs> and showed up at the next show like that in a bathing suit with, with uh, a full swimwear ready for him. So when he saw that, he pretty much dropped his gun and laughed so hard he forgot the words. Yeah. So that's, that, <laughs> that happened. Um, that's so awesome. No, he was, a, he's a lovely guy. He was lovely to me on the road. The whole family was, I mean, you know, I remember Jack and Kelly when they were quite young because I did that, uh, that tour, that, that osmosis tour, 95, 96. I left in August of 96 mm-hmm. to get home and start the cry of love record. So and I started in, uh, November, I think of 95. Fast forward to joining Warren in 2008. You've been with them ever since. Um, so What's kind of the timeline from the cry of love thing until joining Warren? I know the music industry was all over the place at that point. So what did you do in those years? Well, I kind of retreated from it to a certain degree. And then I got several offers that I didn't take. Uh, I did a bunch of songwriting. I was afforded the luxury of being able to sit back and go, okay, what do I want to do next? Uh, Which was nice. But you're right. Everything was weird and changing. And I think there was hesitancy across the board with a lot of people who had had a little who had had a little dig into the music business in the 80s and 90s. Uh, Yeah. After the cry of love thing ended, it was 98. I, uh, like I said, laid low for a little while. I did do several sessions uh, for, like I said, more work for higher stuff. Mm hmm. And I was able to, you know, kind of get by doing that and wrote a bunch of songs, had one, a project that I thought I might want to get into that ended up uh, not coming to fruition the way I wanted it to. So as it happens, it happens with a lot of musicians. Uh, I've, yeah. You know, as opposed to having one band one time that sold a bunch of records i've been in a bunch of different bands and have done a bunch of different projects it's more like a journeyman musician approach to way of life you know yeah and i think a lot of uh musicians are like that now like there's hardly any musicians i can think of that are only in one band well diversification is maybe the way to get where you want to be and i'm i'm a good catalyst i think i like being that in a songwriting aspect or a creative aspect or being in a band. So, uh, you know, the, the solo thing wasn't really where I wanted to be. And I like bouncing ideas off of other people and being that creative element in the studio yeah. and watching, a, watching a project come together. And thankfully I've been able to be hired to do that a bunch of times. Yeah, definitely. Um, friends in tv and film that do the same thing so i've done a bunch of that as well right 
So uh, being in Warrant for as long as you have now, um, are there any like standout awesome moments or any standout catastrophic failure moments that you can <laughs> share? Uh, you know, it's it's it was bittersweet, and I don't know whether I've said this a whole bunch or not, or or at all. The whole thing about getting in the band was bittersweet, and everybody can understand why. Janie and I were friends. He got to a super dark place. Uh, and although they tried to get together and play shows with all five original guys in 2008, seven and eight, and it just didn't work out, and the road was no place for him to be, and he was not, he was succumbing to his demons, let's just say, and I'll leave it at that. Uh, and the band knew it, and I got to see it firsthand. And when we all met up again, it was like, well, we really want to keep playing because there's an audience for it. Right. And they were torn as and they were torn as well. They honestly, I, I truly believe they were. But if you've got a if you've got a a wheel with you know four out of five spokes are perf are perfectly willing to to do the job, and then the one keeps breaking. You are faced with that option. And JD was, you know, a big part of that band, principal songwriter. Uh, he didn't do absolutely everything like some people want to believe, but he's absolutely an unbelievably vital member, a great songwriter, great singer, great frontman. And we were friends. So right. the fact that I saw these guys just genuinely stoked to be back together, but then unhappy that one of the five spokes on the wheel, you know, kept causing right. the wheel to fall off. Uh, it was a decision they made to, to go on. And, and initially it was, well, we don't know what we're going to do. Can you come in? We have obligations. Uh, promote. I don't know if everybody doesn't know how this works, but I mean, you sign contracts and they're, you're going to burn a whole bunch of not just fans, but and ticket buyers, but promoters and, all the crew guys and ancillary people that are involved in, in our business. And they thought, well, we have all these shows booked. We made all these promises. We did all this press. We've got this guy. We should send him home. Can you do some shows? And right. under those conditions, I said, yes, I thought about it a lot. And, you know, and I wrestled with it too, because I knew what I was getting myself into, you know, what the, you'll get praise and you'll get backlash. I've realized you can't please everybody. So I'm just right. going to do my best job and, I think I came from the right place. It's not just like I'm some scab player that they brought in right. because I had his, I have history. I am a fan of the band. We all were our friends. Uh, uh, I'm sure Jenny wasn't happy about it. Uh, and he, he tried sometimes to get himself well uh, through, you know, rehab or whatever, taking breaks. And it just did not happen. It was a, it was an extremely sad day when he passed. Uh, yeah. We all were sad and, and all that nostalgia and all that time spent, you, you know, you can't not be incredibly sad about it. Right. It's a terrible thing to say. Am I surprised? No, I wasn't. And it was, it was a terrible day. We were all sitting together and all of our phones just blew up at the same time over dinner. We were out on, on a trip playing the show, but I was in the band three years before he passed yeah so you know it, it came to be this thing 
thing is like, well, the band's going great. Fans still want to hear it. Promoters still want to book it. Uh, you know, do you want to continue on? And I made the decision to continue on. If yeah. Jenny could have gotten himself well and would have come back, I would have gladly said, well, there you go. There's my time playing with my friends. This guy's back and he's doing great. He's the voice that he should be willing and able. And that just didn't come to pass. So, you know, there you go. As, as unhappy as that is to say on one hand, good and rewarding and fun going on 14 years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and as you mentioned, and as most people know, Janie was uh, the lead songwriter in Warrant. Um, and so do you feel you've, uh, I don't want to say filled those shoes, but taken on that role in the band with your latest records? Uh, we all write together, but yeah, I've done a lot of the writing. Um, everybody has their own thing that they bring. Mm-hmm. Janie now was was Janie was the kind of guy who would he came to the band with some completed songs when uh, when he and Steven left Plain Jane and joined Warrant back in whatever that was eighty six to eighty seven I don't remember but uh, great songwriter uh, I don't fancy myself a great songwriter I'm not that I'm not that cocky right I like I like having co-writes but yes i mean i've written a bunch of songs that have ended up on the last two warrant records by myself but jerry dixon turns out to be a great co-writer with me you know yeah turner turner and and and, and steven steven sings those amazing background vocals he's got great ideas yeah you know like turner's that guitar player he's like he plays like him you know if i write a song and i write a riff or bring something tell something to them say here it is Joey, here's what I'm thinking on guitar. And then they just take it and make it their own. Joey's right. done, done that so many times with all the ideas that I've come up with, or we'll all come up with. Turner comes up with a riff. I turn it into a song. You know, Dixon yeah. comes up with a vocal idea. We all make it into a song. Um, in a word, yes. But I think there's that time was that time. Those songs, I believe, in part, were successful back then on those first two records, three, arguably. You know, you can have people look at either our Rockaholic record or our Harder Faster record that we've done since I've been in the band. And, you know, you can shit on those songs if you like, but if you listen to them with you know, by the same token, I get people like Eddie Trunk. I mean, God, if this song would have really supporting this type of music, it would have been a hit. I'm like, well, okay. You know, that's a nice thing to say. And I appreciate it. And Ed is, is, a, is a dear friend. But okay, you know, cool. I played the demos. I think Brett Michaels and I were flying home and I played a bunch of demos that I had on my phone of that first record that I did with the band, uh, we just he and I were flying home from uh, a gig that we did together where we supported Brett. And he listened to two or three songs. He takes his takes his headphones off. I was like, God, this is this is a fucking hit. This is awesome. This is such a good song. I'm like, well, thank you. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. It's fun. It's funny when somebody with 
who's actually your friend and supportive with nothing to lose tells you something nice or they'll tell you you know the songs that you listened to that you didn't think maybe you didn't think that was a, a good enough song you know i'm i'm yeah. fine with either one of those decisions you know mm -hmm. but yeah criticism aside and you know just like the hater criticism where somebody was very unaccepting of anything else and you know, like i'm i'm not going to please those people I'd love right. for them to be part of our audience, but they're not going to love me. Maybe I'll do my damnedest to convince them that I'm worth listening to. And maybe they'll listen and maybe they won't, but I can't make them. Right. I'm there. I am there in part for sure. In large part at every warrant show to pay tribute to my friend and the songs he wrote and fans that still want to hear them. And they're good songs and the band has fun. And I think that energy out there, uh, you know, I don't get, sucked into the negative world of reading all the comments good right. or bad you know i mean getting angry at something you read that you know some hater comment or something where somebody just feels the need to put their opinion out there like reading that on the internet and getting pissed about it is kind of like walking down the street and seeing dog shit on the side of the road and going purposefully stepping in it like you don't have yeah. to do that yeah I'd rather walk around it and go, oh, well, there you go. There's an unfortunate thing, but you know what? I don't know everything they've been through in their life and vice versa. So right. I would love to have people embrace the, the fact that I'm doing this for the right reasons. I, I am paying tribute. Now, do I need to say it at every show? No, I sing every damn song to the best of my ability. We were friends. If you dig in and you know anything about my history, you know all that. Right. And I mean, I'm having a great time doing it, and so are the guys. So, yeah. And ultimately, you don't play for the haters. You play for the people who want to see you and the people who like what you do. Well, yeah. I mean, part of it pleases yourself and your soul. And I love singing. I love being on my side of a mic. I know I said it a lot. And I love having people on the other side. That's a huge privilege. And being in this band is a privilege. Um, mm -hmm. the the fact that I get to do these songs and there's still an audience for it, that's the reason we do it. Right. And if it ceases to be, then I won't do it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so are you guys working on a new album currently? Uh, currently, no. I'm always putting ideas aside. Some of them suit this band. Some of them don't. Mm -hmm. uh, so having that whole 15 months that we've had off <laughs> through the whole COVID thing. <laughs> yeah. I, I wrote a bunch of songs. A lot of them are on piano. Some are on guitar. Some are skeletal ideas and some are completely finished, but, uh, but we don't have solid plans to record a warrant record. Uh, okay. Our philosophy was 2019 was the 30th anniversary of dirty rotten. And we had a great 2019 uh, midway through 2020 was the 30th anniversary of the cherry pie release. So hmm. we had a, we had a plan to make 2020 and 2021 huge years for us and, yeah. and to celebrate 30 years of that record, playing the entire record like we're doing now. Uh, and, you know, COVID kind of cut us off uh, at the ankles, not even the knees. Yeah. I think we did two or three shows in 2020. So we sort of yeah. just took a mulligan on it and started again up in June. And we've been doing that with that as our focus. 
so we may get around to doing another record. Uh, you know, if it's only to suit my own ego purely, then I probably wouldn't. Uh, if we get songs that I think are good enough and if everybody agrees and we want to go do it, we shall. Okay. Well, uh, you know, I love when audiences accept those songs and even like them, buy those, right. They buy those records still. Yeah. I mean, we sell, we sell them at merch and people buy them. I, I, you know, I get the reports that people are buying those or downloading those, you know, songs. So that's a huge privilege as well. I'm very thankful for it, but I don't count on it. And it's, uh, I understand that there's a huge nostalgia component in this band. Right. So now that we've covered a good portion of your career, I want to know, how do you define success as a musician? And do you feel you've achieved that? It's weird. I could get as philosophical as to say, every time I get to open up my mouth and sing, audience or not, microphone or not, I'm a musician either way. I'm yeah. a singer either way. I'm a songwriter either way. Uh, if I've finished a song that no one else will hear, but I like it, that's an immense amount of satisfaction. Just sitting there at my piano. Yeah. Did it the other day. Don't know if anybody will ever hear it, mm -hmm. but it's there. And I derive an immense amount of satisfaction out of being able to, whenever I'm able to do what I love to do. Uh, everybody's job has great days and not so great days. Mm -hmm. Let's hope. Let's hope that everybody's <laughs> job, job has great days. Uh, you know, this has got the same. Uh, more often than not, it's the best job I ever had. So, yeah, as the saying goes, so I have a lot of fun with it. I get to make people forget their problems mm -hmm. for, you know, the hour and a half and or maybe longer and uh, have a lot of fun. I get to play with guys I like. I get to be up there and have that enviable position of looking at an audience and watching them enjoy themselves to songs that I sing, whether or not I wrote them. Yeah that in itself to me is pretty successful. Now, the bigger the audience, yeah, the more monetary success you have. Yeah, that's true. Okay. That's fun right. too. I like, I like stuff, you know, I mean, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not completely hung up on material things clearly, but they're nice to have. And it's nice to be able to have the security to be able to go, okay, the bills are paid. Right. You know, I can get around gas is in the car You know, everything's cool. You know, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, that and having friends, pets, people around you, you know, that that you can share all that with. Uh, but for me is that I get to do something as a career, a vocation that uh, that I enjoy doing. Yeah. Well, that's awesome to hear that you are uh, proud of what you've done in your time. Um, so well, we're not coming... everything, but you know. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I don't think there are very many people who are proud of everything they've done in their lifetime. Exactly, we are human. Right, right. No, and right. That's I, part I, of it. I do my best, and honestly, I take a lot of stock in that. I, I, I had to sit back and, and take inventory of, of my life and go, wow, you know, people are. 
genuinely happy at these shows and are rocking out and they're, you know, I get a lot of people very thankful and gracious for this that come up and say, this is cool. You, we still get to go see warrant and thank you for doing this. Yeah. So that's a huge reward. Mm-hmm. I mean, beats having, beats having rotten fruit thrown at you, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. And I mean, uh, it's nice seeing uh, a new generation of uh, fans of rock music, too. I mean, I'm noticing more and more uh, younger people at shows, which is cool. I mean, I, I'm 15. Um, so I'm usually one of very few kids in the crowd, but I feel like it's getting better. Like M3, there was quite a few kids. That was pretty cool. So if that keeps up. See now, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I had no idea. There you go. See, you are the younger generation that, that gets it. Um, and I have nothing, I'm not one of those, you know, quote unquote old guys that, that is bitter and wants everything new to be different or, or everything new is crap and everything old is great. I'm not one of those people, Yeah. but there was a fun time. And the fact that that resonates through everything from movies to video games, you know, where you hear these songs that that music has lasted in one form or another. And it's cool that guys, people, friends of ours that have come out to shows forever and got, you know, people that I remember from the 90s, early 90s coming out to all these rock shows, bringing their kids out and their kids yeah. are grown up and their kids are coming out yeah. and, you know, they show up in, in a t-shirt and they have an album that they want you to, you know, sign. And you're like, wow, you weren't even alive. <laughs> yep. Yep. I get that all the time. <laughs> I mean, it's true. It's true. Um, and it's I mean, I, me too. Cause like, as much as I didn't grow up in like the eighties or early nineties, I still grew up like listening to that music. Like that's always what I've heard. So to me, that's like, it's my whole world. (laughs) Was that a reflection of your upbringing or did you find it on your own? Yeah. I mean, most most certainly it was my parents. My parents listened to, I definitely heard a lot of warrant growing up. Um, Lynch Mob, I heard a lot growing up. Tesla, I heard a lot growing up. Ozzy, stuff like that. So that definitely cool. was a result of my parents. <laughs> yeah, see, mine was not. I uh, I would be into everything from 40s and 50s crooners and doo-wop all the way to, you know, whatever. But but my parents were born in the 30s and late 30s and 40s. So mm-hmm. there you go. It's uh, the genera- generational thing. And I'm the oldest. I did not have any older siblings to turn me on to uh, stuff that, you know, would have been like 60s and 70s music. So I had to discover yeah. that on my own. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're coming to the end here. You want to let people know where they can check you out on social media? Um, all of my personal social media and all the usual suspects is, is uh, Robert Mason Vox, B-O-X as in voice, uh, you know, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm not as active on there as perhaps I should be, but I'm a little, it's not like I'm a caveman, but, uh, but I stay pretty busy. You know, the warrant guys are all warrant rocks mm-hmm. our website, all of our social media. We're, uh, we're in Duluth, Minnesota. I'm flying there tomorrow. 
playing a show Friday night with, with the Skid Row guys. Uh, they nice. they're celebrating 38, 38 years of uh, Slave to the Grind. So we get to do a thirty thirty concert. We're doing all our cherry pie stuff, and they're doing all their slave stuff. So nice. that's fun. Yeah, it's good to do that. You know, we're all we're all friends, and uh, mm-hmm. I think Steelheart's on that bill too. We all get along. It's it's kind of fun to be this far down the road and still be doing this. Yeah. And genuinely like doing it too. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, um, is there anything else you'd like to include? Want to throw on at the end here? <laughs> uh, gosh, I don't know. Well, we're, at, you know, check out Warrant Rocks and all of our social media. Come and see a show. Yeah. If you're on the fence, if you're on the fence about it, maybe that'll, uh, that'll sway you that, that we're, we're there for the right reasons and uh, still having fun doing it. If you're on the fence about it, I will yell at you. You better go see Warren. <laughs> well, that I, I appreciate, well, you know, the endorsement of a real human sometimes <laughs> I think is still better than reading a review on Yelp or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. That's true. And I can attest I've seen Warren like, I don't know, three, four times now. Great live <laughs> show. Do it. <laughs> outstanding i appreciate it thank you thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the rocket interviews podcast i'm your host shannon wilk and tune in next week for the next episode